Welcome to another podcast from Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club of California. Get tickets to upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. And now here's our program. My name is Gerald Harris. I am the chair of the club's technology and society member-led forum and your, and your host for this evening's program. Dr. Ruha Benjamin is an internationally recognized writer, speaker, and professor of, American, of African-American studies at Princeton University. Dr. Shabnan Quarella Azad is the first female dean of the USF School of Education and in 2018 was recognized as one of the most influential women in the Bay Area. Without further ado, our speakers. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Thank you for coming. It's so uh, special to be here. Um, I want to thank the Commonwealth Club for hosting us, such a special venue. Um, And just everyone who took time out of their week. Everyone is, you know, running, busy, um, struggling, and I just appreciate you taking time out for this. It's really sweet and special to see some of my former students. Um, they brought flowers and honey, so I want to give it up for them. <laughs> Thank you. And I should say, just over 20 years ago, I moved to Berkeley to start grad school, and the person who picked me up from the airport <laughs> is Shavnam. And so this conversation, uh, so, you know, so we go back and I had a a toddler in tow. I was not prepared for the Bay Area cold. So she had to help me find sweaters that I had packed in a in a truck coming across the country. And so I couldn't think of anyone who I most wanted to talk to um, and coming home again um, to talk about this book. So thank you, Shabnam June. So uh, let's start with my teacher, Octavia E. Butler. Everything you touch, you change. Everything you change, changes you. That's in a a nutshell. That is the heartbeat of this text. It is the epigraph of the book. And if you have to walk out early, you'll know what I came to share. It's what Octavia taught us. So viral justice begins with my childhood growing up right here in the White House where my grandparents, the whites, planted roots after fleeing Jim Crow South. They put a plaque on the door to let you know this is the real White House. So although this was the side of L.A. where even the palm trees looked exhausted, in my mind, the entire world revolved around our block. School bells ringing, police helicopters circling, music vibrating from the apartments next door, and my grandma holding court in the kitchen. There in that house was where I first caught fire, as in the poem, Catch the Fire, by Sonia Sanchez. I say, where is your fire? I say, where is your fire? You got to find it and pass it on. You got to find it and pass it on from you to me, from me to her, from her to him. From the sister to the brother, from the daughter to the mother, from the mother to the child. Where is your fire? I say, where 
is your fire. Can't you smell it coming out of our past? The fire of living, not dying. The fire of loving, not killing. Where is our beautiful fire that gave light to the world? Walking, singing, building, laughing, learning, teaching, being. Here is my hand. Catch the fire and live, 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 live. That's Catch a Fire by Sonia Sanchez. There in that house under Grandma White's roof was where I first experienced mercy. As in the poem Mercy by Nikki Giovanni. She asked me to kill the spider. Instead, I got the most peaceful weapons I can find. I take a cup and a napkin. I catch the spider, put it outside and allow it to walk away. If I am ever caught in the wrong place, at the wrong time, just being alive and not bothering anyone, I hope I am greeted with the same kind of mercy. Mercy by Nikki Giovanni. There in that house under Grandma White's roof was where I first experienced love, as in the poem L-O-V-E by Ursula Rucker. On this day, there will be no talk of war or politic or disaster or death. Love is alive today. So we will speak only of love. There will be only love on tongue and lip and in heart and thought. And it won't be that Hollywood type of love. No, not TV love, not dime store novel love, and certainly not mainstream music love. Love, love, you know, love. Love that has been worked on like gardens and term papers. Love that has been nurtured like children and well, like children. Love that falls, crashes even, burns, but dusts off, fixes up and rises, rises more brilliant than before. Phoenix love. Yeah, Phoenix love. So let us speak only of love, healing love, no herbal over-the-counter love, real healing love, like God love, like mother's love, lover's love, child's love, like best friend love, and change the world love, human love, humans love, love soft, love hard, but just love. Enjoy this new garden. Work on it together, and it will be perennial. It will grow year to year. It will be beautiful. It will win blue ribbons and everything. Folks will come from far and wide just to see it and wish they had it. Had this kind of garden, this kind of love. Love. L-O-V-E by Ursula Rucker. I start with poetry because poetry reminds us that creating a just world requires more than new policies and laws, but a new poetics, by which I mean creative and care and attention to how we treat and value one another. I start with poetry because poetry is easy to underestimate 
The same way it's easy to underestimate how our individual actions and decisions can shape the world around us. Sitting next to a three-inch tomb of a book, a poem appears frivolous and slight. But a poem can slice into your insides and open you up to the world like 1,000 footnotes never could. Hmm. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that something almost undetectable can be deadly and that we can transmit it without even knowing. Doesn't this imply that small things, seemingly minor actions, decisions, habits, could have exponential effects in the other direction? Affirming life, fostering well-being, invigorating society. This attention to seemingly small actions is what I think of as viral justice because of how this virus is teaching me to respect the microscopic. The point is we cannot wait for top-down change or those who monopolize power and resources to save us. We have to start right in our own backyards or front yards for that matter because remembering grassroots can literally mean working in the grass. This is what it looked like in front of grandma's uh, house where I grew up. These grassy patches running alongside the sidewalks all over the city are called parkways. But now, some of these dry patches look like this, overflowing with edible gardens, thanks to Ron Finley, a.k.a. the gangster gardener, <laughs> longtime residents of South Central, a place he <clears throat> describes as home to the drive through and the drive-by. But Finley is changing that, one plot at a time. In 2010, he grew frustrated with how residential segregation had made it hard to purchase affordable fresh vegetables in the neighborhood. So he decided to plant food in the parkway between the sidewalk and the street. Funny thing is, he says, the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-bys. People are dying from curable diseases in South Central. I got tired of seeing this happening, he says. I see dialysis centers popping up like Starbucks. And I figured... This has to stop. Food is the problem and food is the solution. He says, so what I did, I planted a food forest in the front of my house. Pumpkins, peppers, sunflowers, kale, corn. At first, the city cited him and threatened to issue an arrest warrant, <laughs> reminding us how law enforcement is so often used as a blunt and violent tool to address pressing issues like food insecurity, environmental injustice, housing injustice, and more, all connected. What if we got to the roots of the problem instead? Eventually, Finley and supporters got the city to change the law that prevented people from growing edible landscape on parkways. Now, he and his team at Green Grounds have planted over 20 urban gardens around L.A., they also created a teaching garden to spread knowledge about organic farming with the aim of also creating jobs for local residents. Growing your own food is like printing your own money, Finley likes to say. For Finley, it was never simply about the food, though. He gets emotional talking about how food insecure neighbors were shocked when they realized they could take whatever they wanted from his yard for free. His philosophy is to give a person a vegetable, but also teach them how to farm. So they have skin in the game. 
He says the air is better. You're changing the ecosystem when you put in a garden. We are part of that ecosystem. So that garden is changing us. Sound familiar? (laughs) And then the beauty factor, he says. You get to walk out of your door and experience nature every day. That's going to change you. I don't care how jaded you are. Beauty is not frivolous, nor should it be a luxury reserved for those who can afford it. Even under the harshest conditions, we all hunger not only for food, but also for beauty and meaning, which is why art and imagination are so vital for world building. So what I'm calling viral justice orients us differently towards small-scale, often localized actions. It invites us to witness how an idea or action that sprouts in one place may be adopted, adapted, and diffused elsewhere. But it also counters the assumption that scaling up should always be the goal. Whereas the gangster gardener is literally growing the world we want, there are world builders including many in this room, getting their hands dirty in many other ways. One of the examples of viral justice that I end the book on takes us to the city of Seattle, where a growing group of residents are focused on nearly microscopic changes in the city budget. Here we find a broad coalition of over 200 local organizations that decided to band together in the wake of the 2020 protests. Together, they're working on a range of issues, including housing for all, indigenous sovereignty, safe and affordable public transportation, childcare, education, food support, digital equity, disability justice, and a Green New Deal. Like other examples I discuss, they're connecting what we don't want and what we do want, noting that the city spends 26 times more on policing than on climate. So the solidarity budget invests in climate resilience through spending that helps transition low-income households from oil heat to clean energy. So that lowers climate pollution and reduces residents' utility bills. Their demand to stop police sweeps of homeless encampments is tied to the demand to invest in affordable housing throughout the city. Shrinking the criminal legal system leads to fewer people cycled through King County Jail, most of whom are shuttled through the city's municipal courts for misdemeanor offenses. Rather than hand over more money to police for surveillance technologies, the solidarity budget is investing in tech for the people, in which digital stewards work with community members. They also created a guaranteed income pilot program to cover childcare, food, and other basics because too often people have to choose between these essential needs. The last time I checked, the Seattle Solidarity Budget organizers successfully shrank the police budget two years in a row while winning investments that center the city's most marginalized residents. By tearing down the silos across their many interests, coming together to consult, hosting public education meetings over Zoom, rallying at City Hall, showing up to provide testimony at city council meetings and more, they remind us that a budget is more than a budget. It is a moral document that states who and what we value. Even more, their work brings to life the fact that all of our struggles are interconnected, that we are interconnected. 
a beautiful poetics of living. Viral justice is an admission. I am, we are exhausted, discouraged, grieving, sometimes too exhausted to grieve. It's a recognition that even the most resolute and hopeful among us need encouragement to see another day. As a world-building rubric, viral justice is forward-looking and inventive, asking, what if, while stubbornly invested in the here and now, demanding, why wait? What if we can architect a radically different existence? Why wait for these brutal, death-making structures to completely collapse before we start truly living? The lens of viral justice encourages us to amplify like a microscope would seemingly small efforts and entice us to spread them. It's a rallying cry that scraps this bogus idea that you're just one person. As just one person, let's band together with all the other just people who are equally hungry for change. In the midst of multiple ongoing calamities, this work of crafting more caring social relations is not charity work, work to be done on behalf of others. Falling from a burning building, I might hit the ground first, but you won't be far behind. My well-being is intimately bound up with yours. So we don't need allies. We need everyone to smell the smoke. Again, it may be tempting to dismiss these efforts as fleeting and inconsequential, as we're still taught to only appreciate that which is big and grand, official and codified. But a microscopic virus has news for us. A microvision of justice and generosity, love and solidarity can have exponential effects. So at the end of the day, I am a student of the late, great Octavia E. Butler, writer and builder of speculative worlds. To the question, what is there to do? She once responded, I mean, there's no single answer that will solve all of our future problems. There's no magic bullet. Instead, there are thousands of answers, at least. You can be one of them if you choose to be. We can be one of them if we choose. Vectors of justice, spreaders of joy, transforming our world so that everyone has the chance to thrive. So I'm encouraging all of us to continue to get our hands dirty, if not in the actual dirt like the gangster gardener, in many other ways, because this work is messy. But we each have to figure out what our plot is, whether digging deep or sowing seeds far and wide. Plotting is about questioning the scripts we've been handed and scheming with others, plotting to be and do otherwise for the collective good of all. So with that, please join me in welcoming my sister scholar, Shabnam Kerala, to join me in conversation. Thank you. My goodness. Which one do you want? You go there. Oh, my goodness. Thank you all. Ruha, thank you. Ah, I feel like everyone needs to soak that up for a little while before we even start talking. And if you thought that was good, the whole book 
is full of gems, which is why <laughs> I actually wrote down some of the quotes <laughs> I want to talk about because I thought the, otherwise I'm going to be flipping through the book yeah. the whole time. Perfect. But um, actually, when Ruha was reciting those poetry, <laughs> the poems, mm -hmm. it took me way back, actually, to my wedding 20 years ago. But he's here too. Um, <laughs> We had uh, just kind of asked Ruha, w would you be willing to recite a poem at our wedding? And she was like gracious enough to say, of course. And I think in that moment when Ruha started reciting her poetry, everyone forgot that they were at a <laughs> wedding or that we were getting married, <laughs> like transported into this amazing place. And I think that ability mm -hmm. to really help us transcend particularly in this moment, mm. um, particularly following these last two years, is um, Ruha's magical powers mm. as a scholar and a writer. Because I think when we think about scholarship, we think about the tendency to sort of dig deep and kind of sit there and unravel all these uh, you know, issues, which is really important. We know we need to kind of explore reality really deeply. But then what? You know, many of us kind of get stuck in that. Mm -hmm. And then how do we come out of the critique? How do we transcend? How do we get into sort of the next mm -hmm. um, world building work, society building work is a big question, which I think you give us so many tangible examples in this book. And speaking of this, where is your plot? Um, when Ruha asks this question, it's not just a scholar sort of being like, oh, where is your plot? You know, think about it. Uh, since the moment I knew Ruha, every single space I think that you've occupied has been your plot. And you've done things. I remember being a graduate student and Ruha and several others started this um, gathering called Sister Saturdays, where we could come together and sort of be together and, and so many more. When the pandemic hit, you know, uh, Ruha and her husband, Sean, being the ones to do some storytelling for children on Zoom, didn't know about the Zoom bombing, which I read about here. One of the first cases of wow. Zoom bombing. First case of Zoom bombing. Children's storytelling. Yes. But the act of sort of, you know, how do we sort of see this immediate as, a, as an opportunity? I think mm -hmm. you live it, and therefore it means so much more mm -hmm. reading about it. So speaking of the plot, mm -hmm. um, this is straight from the book. After determining our plot, assessing harmful ways of thinking and doing things, hailing our squad, we have our squad here, it's time to start taking small but significant steps in changing established patterns of thought and action. Macro changes go hand in hand with a transformation of our social relations. And then you quote Grace Lee Boggs, who I mm -hmm. yes. love and tend to quote a lot as well, who says changes in small places also affect the global system, mm -hmm. not through incrementalism, but because every small system participates in an unbroken wholeness. Mm -hmm. Now, can we unpack this a little bit? <laughs> yeah. So this right here, the call for us to consider plots, mm -hmm. the call to identifying our sphere of influence mm -hmm. is so significant 
in a world where everything seems so big and daunting. Right? And I appreciated that little dialogue you included in the book between uh, Yuri Kochiyama and Angela Davis, where Yuri Kochiyama says, you know, um, wh- where do you think we have to begin? Mm-hmm. And Angela Davis says, well, I think it begins wherever you are, right? <laughs> and Yuri responds, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so this is the place, this yeah. is the now. Yeah. But as you make that point in such significant ways throughout the book, yeah. you're also taking us to, through 300 plus pages of this gift of a book that has a deep analysis of our reality. Mm-hmm. So ways in which oppressive systems and structures are embedded in this reality. That everything from state-sanctioned violence against black lives in the form of police violence to the construction of a healthcare system that says it's about healthcare for all, but mm. clearly um, is designed to ser- leave a significant portion of the population out to the analysis of our educational system. We have a lot of educators yes. here as well. Um, the educational system that uh, is constructed for the public good, but is clearly tracked in order to um, kind of make sure that it maintains certain divisions as well and functions within this myth of meritocracy, this notion that everyone can reach to the top if they work hard enough. And, um, and then you take on technology mm-hmm. and the corporate world where advancement, the sense of advancement, butts heads with racial capitalism um, and so on and so forth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it brings us back to this notion that you mentioned earlier of interconnectedness, yeah. this recognition of our interconnectedness being a prerequisite for viral justice. Yes. Can you say a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that synthesis and sort of tour of many of the... And I will admit to you all that in writing it, I I routinely got stuck in the, not just the analysis, but like the just the heaviness of what we're up against, yes. the war against um, anything that s- resembling a cohesive society, you know, and a unified and just society, like uh, the wars that are waged daily against that. And so it frequently editors and early readers would have to say, okay, you know, help me kind of come up and look for the alternatives that are around. And so part of the process is just to show us, you know, kind of like lift our heads and say, people are experimenting, people are working I mean, out of not theoretical and not out like intellectual exercise because their survival depends on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always come back to and I don't know if I actually put this quote in where, you know, Baldwin says, I can't be a pessimist That's because right. to be a pessimist, you've decided that human life is an academic matter, mm-hmm. you know. And so I'm, he says, I'm forced to, yeah. to if we're forced to survive what we must survive. And so part of that is a guiding like it's not toxic sort of, you know, positivity. It's like. To survive, we have to experiment and work and try to create these livable environments amidst all of these other processes, which, you know, we, we can talk about, you know, what the ways to think about that. But I will and I early on, I say, you know, part of the, writing this felt like it was going against my disciplinary training mm-hmm. 
which is focus on the systems and the institutions and the macro. And I have an allergic reaction to any talk of like individual anything, individual responsibility, individual whatever. I kind of break out into sociological hives. You know, I'm like, well, stop talking. (laughs) Just because the hyper individualism of the society in which we live, like everything is imagined to be these free floating individuals. And so I had to come to grips with the fact that that is how that individual responsibility has been appropriated. But individual volition is key Mm -hmm. to whether we're talking about maintaining or subverting these larger processes. Like we're all embroiled in this, you know? And so one of the examples I don't think is in here, but which I've talked about in relation to scientific racism and, and the role of technology since this forum is around a society and technology is like thinking about one, the complicity of a company like IBM with the Nazi regime and producing the the tools and the technologies to collect data in order to track and eventually exterminate entire populations. But understanding like the the author who wrote this great book about this this relationship between IBM and the, the regime talks about how it relied upon a bureaucracy of evil, everyday people just putting their heads down and doing their jobs, clocking in and out, putting those punch cards in, not asking any big questions. Like we focus on the big bag boogeyman, Mm -hmm. but it's the the people who just put their head down and just do what they're told and, and, you know, don't ask any questions. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, we can think about what are the bureaucracies of evil that shape our world today and that we are, we, we are, clocking in and out of, you know? And so this is thinking about plot is like power is not something that's just top down done to Mm -hmm. us. It's diffused. It's also horizontal. We exercise different kinds of power, whether it's in a family structure and the dominant form of power that we're socialized into is this hierarchical mode power Mm -hmm. over others, but that's not the only form of power. That's right. We can be empowered together. Power doesn't, it doesn't rely on me hoarding, lording over you. And so mm-hmm. part of what I'm inviting us to do is to own our power and to understand that we exercise it, whether we really name it or understand it. Mm-hmm. So let's start using it in ways that are affirming, that are life-giving, that are just and joyful, rather than waiting for it to be given permission from some external source. Beautiful. And I think one of the ways you do that so compellingly in this book is to really um, kind of show how there's these systems of inequality that exist um, that, you know, we often talk about really ends up harming everyone. Yes. Right. And you do this throughout the book in such compelling ways where it's it's clear how it affects certain segments of society. Yeah. But to show how oppression and ongoing sort of in, uh, inequities yeah. or unequal practices and the way that they're felt and lived harm in many ways both the oppressed, of yeah. course, but in ways that people don't even realize the oppressors as well. Exactly. And so there is this situation we're in under the current frameworks where there is this notion that they're winners and losers, mm-hmm. but ultimately 
Yes. There are no winners and losers, that we're all losing out. And until we recognize this, that it's actually really hard to advance. Absolutely. So, and so many, you know, great thinkers and theorists that I'm drawing on to sort of marshal that mm-hmm. understanding, you know, whether we're talking about Du Bois and the psychological wage. And so, and whether we're talking about, you know, dying of whiteness, Jonathan Metzl's work, where he does these case study analysis of different U.S. states and looks at the policies um, that would strengthen the social safety net and how many white Americans don't support those out of anti-blackness because, you know, better education or health care is seen to benefit black people. So they they're, you know, they don't support it. But then how it comes back to haunt them and affect them. They're also not benefiting from right. what they need in, in real in like life and death ways. Yes. And so part of what I'm inviting us to think about is how the explicit targets of these systems are mm-hmm. definitely harmed in deadly ways. Yes. But looking not just at the psychological or the spiritual harms to the so-called privileged, but at, a, at an embodied level. That's right. That the idea that Nancy Krieger says our bodies tell stories that we won't we don't want to admit. And so when you start to look at the health of the average white Americans in places that are more unequal, where the, the gap between the haves and have nots is greater, the so-called haves in those places are not faring well. Mm-hmm. Right. Inequality is making everyone sick, whether at a conscious level, but your body is telling a different story. You look country by country, again, places with greater equity. The so-called haves in those places are doing better than the haves in in more unequal places. And so part of it is the invitation to really think about this idea of shared fate, Mm -hmm. how we all benefit from these kinds of investments and reorientation to collective well-being um, in a way that I think, um, you know, it's not going to convince everyone. And that's not what I'm trying to do in in this particular book, but it's just trying to remind us of of this this relationality and it's so helpful i think it's a lens through which we can really start thinking about what's possible as well um i think one of the beauties of this book is the ways in which you weave your own story mm-hmm. throughout as you make these larger kind of macro level observations right and um, in that, I mean, the book takes you through, as I was reading it, and everyone must leave with a copy today. <laughs> but as I was reading it, through it, I mean, there are moments where you go, oh, my gosh, I, I never thought about it this way. And there are moments when you're in tears because you connect so much, you know, to the stories. And there are moments of, of exhilaration as you think, gosh, there's so much hopefulness in the world. So... That's, I think, such a gift um, in this book. And so I feel like we have to talk about being raised by grandmas yes. and, um, <laughs> and also um, your dad. Yeah. Um, because um, Grandma White, mm-hmm. <laughs> who was, um, Ruha talked about earlier, um, this person of so much grace, you can just see it, you know, as you... As you read about her and the ways in which your interactions were um, kind of held back from saying what she <laughs> really thought, but in so doing was saying more than she probably would. Yeah. Um, but also, I think as we think about, you know, these people in our lives, looking at 
their lives within these systems mm-hmm. um, as a sort of retrospective is so powerful yeah. because um, one of the concepts you raise mm-hmm. in talking about your dad mm-hmm. and his, um, you know, struggles and challenges with health primarily mm-hmm. is this concept of weathering. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, I want to hear more about that, but this concept of weathering as Ruha describes it is the is the ways in which we take on these stressors mm-hmm. and uh the ways in which you know we embody these oppressive sort of systems around us and uh one quick story I'll share from my own life which kind of this shone a light on was my father mm-hmm. Um, lives in Nepal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's from Nepal. Mm-hmm. And several years ago, he moved to the United States um, and was here for a few years um, on the East Coast and became really sick. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a physical ailment that you know I had to kind of rush over. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was no real physical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And what we realized was that what he really felt was isolated. Mm-hmm. What he really felt was were these stressors mm-hmm. being from a different place, you know, being a person who felt very purposeful in one space and then came here and just felt like yeah. he was really nobody and had to constantly sort of perform a certain identity. Mm. And so we decided the best thing we could do for him was to send him back mm. <laughs> <laughs> to Nepal. Yeah. But what this makes me realize is what about those who can't return to a Nepal, who feel these stressors, right? This kind of weathering all the time. What is our responsibility? How do we see this? How do we understand this? And I think sometimes within this language of belonging or inclusion and so on, maybe we don't see the extent to which this weathering happens. And so Mm -hmm. you talk about this in the context of education, in the context of healthcare. And I feel like it's so powerful in us understanding the impacts of these systems. Yeah, it is for me. It's not my concept, but I I find it really useful. Arlene Geronimus, a public health researcher, in naming the relationship, the feedback loop between our external environment and our inner world, our inner and our inner um, experience, how racism and other forms of oppression get under our skin, into our bloodstream, um, affecting our nervous system, our mental health. And so it's really trying to name this relationship between our inner and outer worlds. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, part of in, in naming that is to think about, okay, what does it look like to begin to transform that environment mm-hmm. around an individual sure. community. And so part of equity in any of these contexts, often when we focus on it, it's trying to give people access to an existing institution, like giving people access to health care or to an education system or to you know housing without thinking about what is the foundation of that system. It, the, the, founda- the, the actual thing needs to be completely transformed. Getting access to something that's killing you what good is that? And we see, I mean, just the, the, related to the previous comment, when we look, for example, at the opioid crisis among specifically white Americans, I mean, part of the dynamic is you're not being racially profiled in the same way as black folks are. 
and stigmatized for drug seeking, Mm -hmm. as we often are. Your pain is taken more seriously. You're given access to something that's killing you Mm -hmm. because of your whiteness (laughs) and your privilege. And so... Again, getting back to weathering, it's thinking, okay, it's what we're what we're after is not simply getting people in the door, getting more diversity in the status quo. It's thinking about what is the 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 this burning building that we're all clamoring to get into. (laughs) Can we can we can we pause? And so tangible example in the chapter on um, called uh, exposed that is about Mm -hmm about health, but also about reproductive justice and reproductive health, recounting my own experience of being a young black um, mom and being faced with both the cultural stigma of be- in being in that embodied position, but also the option of like, okay, having, you know, trying to seek health from a conventional uh, medicine in which the the rate of death for in terms of black maternal health and infant health is abysmal mm-hmm. right and so in that time of my life the environment that was surrounding me i was so mm-hmm. fortunate to be living in atlanta where the black midwifery tradition has been kept alive over generations even though it's not legal mm-hmm. <laughs> to practice home based midwifery there even now but midwives stepped in friends stepped in so i i had around me a completely different environment that wasn't this stress inducing um hyper surveillance experience of being you know um in in the healthcare Mm -hmm. industry Mm -hmm. but it was you know community-based approach and so what i'm proposing in this part of the book is to say it's this is not just a cute niche alternative. Mm-hmm. The values and the practices that are constitute doula, black doula, and and birth care, we need to learn from it, and it needs to instruct how we approach healthcare more broadly, right? And so we take that culturally sustaining knowledge, and that has to inform this larger. Um, this larger because it can't be just the privileged who can afford this special right. thing. It needs to completely uh, help guide our, our process um, with this larger process. And similarly, we can take each institution and do that same thought exercise, but I'm getting us to kind of question mm-hmm. the logics of diversity, equity, and inclusion Absolutely, because there's a such thing as predatory inclusion mm-hmm. where to be included in something can harm you. Yes. <laughs> and yes. so we have to rethink that. That's exactly right. So in terms of this kind of how thought is shaped and and, uh, how thought then leads, kind of seeps into our common sense, and then common sense leads to these simplified stories that you call it, you know, Mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, these are the simple stories that end up taking the shape of practices and policies and so on. And so what I find beautiful in your writing is this um, the the ability to capture ideas, but then also to track the genealogy of that idea, right? That I often tell young people uh, <laughs> sitting there in the back row about this, that you have to be able to identify ideas, that sometimes we just get so entangled. But to even recognize something as it's an idea, yeah. 
And I'm going to see where this came from. And I think that the ability that you have to track the genealogy of these ideas that have taken the shape of policies, practices, everyday habits Mm -hmm. is really something, I think, for me, a powerful takeaway from this um, book. Because even, I mean, in education, yeah. and you, I love that there's a chapter on mm-hmm. education, everyone, <laughs> and actually speaks to free minds, free people as a place, yes. as a space, and, and so many of the folks that we think of as collaborators in this work. But um, really, even I think the example of testing in education as this, you know, we call it the testing regime because it's taken hold. We have educators right here who, you know, it's it's something that we're we all know is not serving us. And we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the the issues behind testing. Um, But then. If you read Ruha's book and (laughs) really tracking that genealogy to even recognizing that testing has roots in eugenic ideology, (laughs) right, gets us to understand why, why it exists and why it's perpetuated. I'm seeing a lot of nods Mm -hmm. because I'm guessing Mm -hmm. this is not just in the field of education, that in many different fields, we see these practices that really, if we track these ideas and and where they come from, we see that the roots are really in a place where they need to be examined. And so you talk about, um, Mm -hmm. you know, of course, being a student of Octavia Mm -hmm. Butler, Mm -hmm. you take this idea of being a sower and then you say it's not just about sowing, but it's also about uprooting. Yes. And so part of this idea of uprooting the issues that exist yes. seems like what you're te- you know, really showing us and then also encouraging us to do is to get to the root causes, yes. to understand the genealogy of these ideas yeah. so that we can better understand what needs to be uprooted. Yes, absolutely. And so um, that, I think, is just brilliantly done throughout. Yeah. You know, so many things that we take as common sense, yeah. really understanding where they came from. Yeah. And I don't know if you want to yeah, talk absolutely. a little bit more about I mean, this I, I'm just cause. basking in how you're synthesizing, <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't know I was doing all that but I'm <laughs> glad that that's what it <laughs> um no it's so wonderful to listen to you yeah so you know I mean to the first point I think we you know we have to understand we have to take ideas seriously in the way that they animate and give life yes. to things that we then associate with more concrete material like mm-hmm. the I- idea the imagination behind it and so thinking about the eugenics imagination mm. that animates so many of our institutions we saw it very vividly throughout covid in terms of whose lives were just left for dead and who was you know privileged in terms of our policies and so yes. on but we can see it every day in terms of the funding of our schools, like predominantly white school districts That's receive right. something like $23 billion more yes. than majority black and Latinx mm-hmm. school districts. That Those line items are telling us who and what we value. That's right. And so, so part of it is to take the ideas, the imagination that, that are being hardened into these concrete forms seriously, um, getting to the root of it. Um, naming it. I mean, one, one here, we're here in San Francisco. One 
um, study that comes to mind is anthropologist Savannah Shanje, who wrote Progressive Dystopia. Mm-hmm. So she's looking at a school here in the city that seems on the surface to be doing all the right things in terms of the curriculum and, you know, all the liberated li- liberation fighters That's and right. murals the and murals everything looks always. so progressive. Yeah. And, and yet, like, black and, uh, you know, black students, I think, That's in that school right. are being expelled at the highest rate in the city. Or, you know, some the disciplinary, you know, practices mm-hmm. still are reproducing this same thing. And so part of it is to go beyond the surface of things yes. and to really dig deep and see what's happening. What are the logics? And testing is one of many practices that seem to be hardened. But part of the invitation here is to see how things develop so we can see when those choices were made by everyday people. That's right. A policy is not just some abstract thing. People sat down and wrote it and created it and crafted it. And so naming that Mm -hmm. to me is the first step in denaturalizing it so that we don't assume that it was inevitable, Mm -hmm. that the world that we have now it's in that because as soon as you think something is inevitable and fixed, mm-hmm. you you're automatically disempowered to try to change it. But when you start looking, oh, see how this decision was made. See who did it. Mm-hmm. So there's a chapter there on science and scientific distrust where we're talking about, you know, all of the horrific experiments on, um, you know, oppressed people. But oftentimes in our everyday conversation about those, the way that we name, let's say, when people say Tuskegee. We say Tuskegee, that was the name of the place, instead of saying the U.S. Public Health Service (laughs) study in this place. So even in our naming of it, we've completely written out who the people and individuals and institutions were that carried out this thing. Similar when we talk about the ongoing lead crisis in a city like Baltimore. And if you look it up on Wiki, it'll say the Baltimore Lead Study. Baltimore residents didn't create that study that (laughs) is poisoning kids. Mm -hmm. Let's call the institutions and the people who actually are constructing these things. So that's just the first step. That's not going to solve it. But that part of naming is to say there are actual people, groups, individuals who are making these decisions that then become hidden. Mm -hmm. And the black places and people who are experiencing the harm, then we associate them with it. And so, again, it's just to see the power of ideas and names in our discourse and our conversations as a first step to be able to challenge these things and to denaturalize it so we can see, oh, we can make different decisions. Right. We can demand a different way of relating to each other and valuing people. Great. (laughs) We're down to about our last five minutes here. So uh, I want to squeeze in a couple of questions. But, again, uh, please, you know, join me in thanking our speakers tonight, I think you've done a fantastic job, Dr. <laughs> Benjamin, Dr. Zad. Um, so there are two questions, but I think they're sort of in the same ballpark. Let me give you a little bit of flavor of these questions. Mm-hmm. But they get to this question of the how-to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, the first question is around, really around technology mm-hmm. in the sense that the difference between a smart watch and an ankle monitor mm-hmm. may not be that big a difference, Okay. So I think the question here is, so how do we begin to step outside the grip of this technology as we're being swept up among us? I think that's the the essence of this question. (laughs) Thank you. And, you know, this invariably happens. 
uh, people who are, have been gracious enough to read my previous work are bringing, they're bringing their questions that they've been bubbling for a while. Yeah. So viral justice is not mainly about tech. There is some discussion of tech in the chapter on work. When we get to the gig economy, we look at the way that tech is shaping labor and, and work and, and the different demands to change the kind of surveillance around that. But this viral justice isn't mainly addressing this. I do talk about it in Race After Technology, mm-hmm. getting us to think essentially about the way that tech solutionism is offered oftentimes as a, a corrective to past harms and biases, like in this example, um, Yes, we have this huge problem of caging people, overcrowded jails and prisons. Let's use ankle monitors so people can go home. So it seems like a good alternative, but it's a new kind of prison. Mm -hmm. It's a new kind of carcerality that has its own forms of violences and harms associated with it that have been well documented. One of my colleagues, James Kilgore, has written a fantastic book on e-carceration. And again, in naming it, we need to... call it what it is, right? It's a new form of incarceration. And so I think that element of it, I think, relates to the conversation here in terms of paying attention to how we're being sold different kinds of solutions Mm -hmm. and ways forward and really looking beneath the surface and thinking about what are the underlying logics and values that are animating this and to consistently demand refusing to choose between an option that's bad and badder as in this case, and to say, no, we refuse that binary. We refuse those choices. We are going to experiment, dream up, create third, fourth, and fifth choices that are actually life affirming and just Mm -hmm. and, and, and are the world we want. And so that this is how the conversation relates to um, this, this scenario. Great. Okay. So uh, one more question from the audience has to do with, um, Ethics, mm-hmm. right? And the, the essence of this question is, you know, how do we create, cultivate a rigorous approach to ethics as we are imagining and cultivating our plots here? How, how does that get layered in here? I think that's a big question. It's like a dissertation-worthy question. And again, <laughs> it's like ethics in what context? Mm-hmm. Are we talking about tech ethics, bioethics? You know, um, and I, I think it's an important question to bring up in relation to conversations and in in um, thinking about power and inequality. Because sometimes, many times, ethics can be reduce the com- narrow the conversation in such a way that it takes as given whatever the status quo is and ethics becomes a way to just soften the harms and to give sort of practices that can help people negotiate in hostile environments. And so part of it is to say, okay, is ethics becoming a handmaiden to the powers that be mm. in terms of just enabling and softening um, these harmful institutions? And so we, I mean, Ethics are important, but it should it should have a kind of independence to it that can can refuse those harms. And so I've written again, not in this. I don't know if I talk about in this book, but the idea of informed refusal. Mm -hmm. So in, in the context of ethics and and human subjects research, let's say, you know, we know many of us know this term called informed consent. Like people need to have information and then consent to whatever it is. And my proposition is people can get information, but they should also have the right and the power to refuse mm. to be participate in X, Y, and Z. That's real power and empowerment. And so, again, it's thinking about not having 
um, the conversation and the demands reduced in a way that sometimes uh, ethics can can play a role in. Okay. I say the last question for myself. Okay. (laughs) Moderator's prerogative. So um, you uh, many of you saw the piece that Frontline did on defund the police Mm -hmm. in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. They got voted down. Mm -hmm. Beautiful young brother in this piece, Mm -hmm. bottom-up innovation, talking to people in the community, advocating. They got voted down. Mm-hmm. including the majority of the black community, mm-hmm. okay? So my question is, how do we reach across the aisle mm-hmm. in some of the ideas you have in the book mm-hmm. to people who violently disagree with you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what, what is the technique mm-hmm. that we're all in the room at the same time? It's a good question, and I'm going to not refuse to answer, but I'm going to share a recent study that I, that I um, came across last week that questions some of the assumptions behind why that ballot measure, why the failure, and what people think about defund. Um, so the study, uh, and I'm, I'm blanking on the institution, it's in Southern California, we can look it up um, after the fact, but essentially they surveyed um, people of different political orientations about um, whether they supported funds being taken from LAPD and put in, into basic social safety net, housing, mental health, the kinds of things we actually need, social services and so on. And what they found was that 65%, about 65% of people who were uh, conservatives and moderates supported taking funds from LAPD and investing it in these other things, 75, 76% of progressives, not surprising. The finding that was interesting, which I want us to just mull over as we transition, is that people who live with an officer in the home, over 70%, 75% of people who live with an officer believe that we should transfer funds from LAPD and put it into these other things. Mm-hmm. So, again, they present us with that data. It's just out in the last two weeks. They don't really, I didn't, haven't really seen them unpack yet. I haven't read the unpacking of why this would be, but I think it's something for us to think about in terms of the proximity mm-hmm. that people who live with people in this profession, they think that we should be investing in other things. Mm-hmm. So let's think about that. And I think part of what this does, and it's interesting, though, it doesn't use the language of defund. It says, like, practically, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take these resources. But they're talking about defunding, but they don't use that rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But there's much more support for this than we, I think, oftentimes our headlines and our pundits like to like to. That's right. And across the political spectrum and those closest to the individuals who would supposedly be mis- losing out. And so I just want to put that out there as a way to trouble the common sense that we're often fed and the kind of polarization uh, rhetoric that we um, are, are, you know, sort of socialized to think is. But, but, but in all fairness, 
they lost the election, right? Mm-hmm. Right, but do, but do what, we no, know what but, the? But, do we know what there was like forty five percent? Across yeah. though, reaching across, but there not, wasn't not validating right. reaching across. Right, we can talk about it, but I know people on the ground who were part of the campaign, and in in many of their view, it was a lo- a loss on that, but it was like forty five percent of people supported this, and so part of what we want to think about is it's it seems like oh, in that one vote. It seems like a loss, but the the growing consciousness around this in a very short period of time in which many more people are coming to question something that seemed to be a given. Part of what we want to think is that have that longer term view. It's a process and we're moving in the right direction. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum from the Commonwealth Club of California. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash inform. And join us again soon for another podcast from Inforum. You never know who you'll meet.